This episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast is sponsored by AWS Energy. AWS brings the most advanced and secure cloud services and deep industry expertise across energy, utilities, and sustainable energy sectors. Together with a broad partner ecosystem, AWS is accelerating the energy transition through practical innovations to deliver energy efficiently, reliably, sustainably, and responsibly. Learn more at aws.amazon.com slash energy. Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Asa Kare Burritt, Director of Policy and External Affairs at Bridger Photonics. Bridger Photonics performs aerial methane detection focused on the oil field. As we talk about the energy transition, one of the key emissions that we need to have reduced is methane. So I'm glad to have Asa on to talk today on what they're doing specifically in this space. So Asa, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would please share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to Bridger Photonics. Yeah, Joe, thanks for having me. So my background is in science. I have a PhD in physical chemistry and kind of where that plays into our company and why I bring it up is because Bridger Photonics is a science company. So our leadership is made up of laser physicists and technical excellence is really the underpinning of everything that we do. So Bridger Photonics main product by a long shot is gas mapping LIDAR. And what gas mapping LIDAR is in its simplest form or in its simplest description is methane sensing lasers that are mounted on airplanes and helicopters and we fly those lasers over oil and gas infrastructure and we map out the methane emissions from that infrastructure. And so we serve oil and gas operators, those are our clients. And from those measurements, what we do is we generate this really actionable data that those operators can then use to mitigate their methane emissions. So at Bridger Photonics, our mission is really just to make it as simple as possible for the oil and gas companies to reduce their methane emissions. And so kind of what that data looks like, uh, you know, we don't sell our sensors themselves. We just sell that actionable data to the operators. And what that data looks like in its visual representation is really just a map that shows the pictures of methane plumes and where they exist on infrastructure. That is really interesting. And I want to get back. We will talk about Bridger Photonics. I'm really curious, though. You're the director of policy and external affairs, but you have a PhD in physical chemistry. How, how did that happen? 
<laughs> That's a great question. Um, so really, I just met the CEO uh, by happenstance and we started talking. We had a lot of shared passions and, you know, passions for the outdoors, passions for science, uh, a lot of shared interests. And we just started talking about the things that he needed help with at Bridge of Photonics. And one of the things was interfacing with regulatory agencies. So there's been a lot of new methane rules for the oil and gas industry recently. And so one of our functions is to provide technical input on how those rules can embrace these breakthrough methane sensing technologies so that operators can use them for regulatory compliance. So even though, you know, my title says policy and I have a background in science, really I serve in this sort of technical advisory role to the regulators instead of, you know, more in a political aspect. And so that's where I'm able to leverage my quantitative background. Very cool. And I think that that helps lead into and I, I always do like the the idea of having that technical knowledge and understanding so that you can really understand what the value is that you're bringing to people developing the policy. So yep. when we think about methane leak detection, I think we all understand that overall, okay, yeah, we should stop stop methane leaks. But it does seem like we're talking about it more now. So why is that? Why is it a hotter topic now than say two or three years ago? Yeah, it's really, so methane has really been identified as one of the, lowest hanging fruits to meet our climate targets. So as we look ahead to 2030 climate targets and we're looking at, you know, where we can make the most impact and where it makes the most sense to direct our efforts, it's in anthropogenic methane. So anthropogenic mean human caused. So anthropogenic methane emissions. And the reason that methane is such an attractive target is because it's what we call a short-lived climate forcer. And that means that it exists in the atmosphere for a limited period of time. And now methane in particular, on a 20-year horizon, is something like 80 times more potent as a climate forcing agent compared to CO2. Now, on a 100-year horizon, is something more like 30 times more potent. But what that means is if we can get rid of those methane emissions, we can effectively make, you know, a very immediate impact and, and work hard to achieve our climate goals. And so the, kind of there's been this emphasis on mitigating methane emissions from petroleum or oil and natural gas systems. And part of that is because this industry is really shovel ready. So, you know, methane is the principal component of natural gas. So if we can keep that methane in the pipeline, you know, that's a valuable product that we can use for energy production. And we don't necessarily need to install a bunch of additional infrastructure in order to harness and utilize that natural gas or that methane. Now, of course, as far as human caused methane sources, uh, petroleum systems are one of say, three predominant sectors. So there's petroleum systems, agriculture, and the waste segment. But in, in, the, in the economic analysis and, and feasibility, uh, petroleum systems have really been targeted as you know, a really effective avenue to mitigate methane emissions. Yeah. And something you pointed out there, I, I've never really thought about. That's a, a very important point that the, 
the methane mitigation infrastructure and and stopping that is kind of, as you said, shovel ready versus something like CO2 and carbon sequestration. We have one active well in the U.S. How many permits that are continuing to pile up with the EPA? So mitigating methane will have that immediate impact. And I, I think that people don't think about enough the that climate forcer point that you made that there is it is more potent and has a significant larger impact over the next hundred years so it's almost like a compounding effect the fact that if we know where the methane's coming from we can have a strong strong um positive impact on on climate change by mitigating that yeah Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, with the, the end goal of making natural gas, you know, as, as clean of a fuel as possible when, you know, when you eliminate associated methane emissions, then, you know, you're recovering that energy. You're not contributing as many CO2 equivalents to emissions. So it's really just a win-win if, if you can mitigate those methane emissions and, you know, that shovel ready aspect, most of the methane emissions from petroleum systems come from kind of what we call point sources. So these like localized places that emissions are coming from versus, you know, agriculture, it might be a pretty difficult problem if you're looking at an entire feedlot, you know, how do you address that, that sort of a source? Yeah. Yeah. So coming to point sources seems very simple and, and easier to find. So when we talk about, what Bridger Photonics does and the the maps that you're generating to highlight those methane methane emitters. How do we, I guess, can you go into a little bit more detail on how you actually go about doing that? What does it actually look like if I'm if I'm a company saying I want to stop I want to stop producing methane or releasing it? Yeah. How do I figure that out? <laughs> How do I stop? Right. So, yeah, you you really want to do it in a strategic manner. And so our data is used in a couple of different ways. One of the ways that companies use our data is in this leak detection and repair approach. So essentially what that means is we have some sort of leak or process that we can prevent from happening and we can directly mitigate those emissions. So what you would do is you would look at our data that, you know, so methane is, if you're not aware, it's an invisible gas, so you can't see with the naked eye, and our laser spectroscopy makes it visible. You know, we, we measure the methane and we map it out. And we have very precise localization with our data. And so that means you can see what piece of equipment the emission is coming from, and you can oftentimes see, you know, what area of the equipment the emission is actually coming from. And so the operators will look at that plume, and then they'll figure out, you know, is this a leak that we can just go ahead and get rid of and mitigate that methane emission or some sort of other easy-to-prevent process? But when we want to strategically and comprehensively eliminate our methane emissions, uh, we have to we have to use a, a somewhat more sophisticated approach because the leak detection and repair this is really only for you know leaks and uh, easier to prevent emission sources. But if we want to make sure that we're really quantitatively hitting our emissions reduction targets, then we're going to want to uh, look at look at our total emissions, benchmark emissions, make sure we understand what that total volume of emissions is, and then identify the key areas where we can most effectively and economically reduce emissions. 
by statistically evaluating our methane detection data. So you evaluate the detection data, you identify the key emissions drivers, and then you systematically eliminate those emissions drivers. So this goes beyond you know, just simple leaks, but also making sure that infrastructure is operated in a way that does not overpressurize, so we can start eliminating vented emissions and these other sorts of more complicated emission sources. Hmm. Okay. So when I think about emissions, I, I would think, it, and talking about methane here, I would think that it, it might be obvious where the leaks are coming from. Mm-hmm. So I guess where, or obviously there's a market for finding these leaks. So if I'm a, I'm an operator trying to understand where these leaks are coming from. I'm going to go check, check my tank battery, check my wellhead and, and kind of just go through the field. But yeah. is there, is there something that I'm missing by doing that? What is like, what's the profound thing that I'm, that I'm not understanding as understanding my equipment? Yeah, that's, there's a lot to unpack with that question, I think. So, you know, in the first place, we haven't always necessarily understood the magnitude of emissions from oil and gas infrastructure. So in the past, you know, we looked at these sorts of bottom-up models like the Environmental Protection Agency's Greenhouse Gas Inventory or their Greenhouse Gas Reporting Program to understand what the different emission sources are and the magnitude of emissions from those emission sources. Well, these are kind of generalized models and they really only account for equipment operating in the way that we expect it to for the most part. And these models failed to account for the total volume of emissions. Um, And that there's more than just this discrepancy between what emissions actually are compared to this bottom-up model. But there's also the fact that the bottom-up model doesn't actually attribute the volumes of emissions correctly necessarily. You know, especially when you're trying to apply a generalized model to the entire United States. The different regions within the U.S. have really different characteristics in the way that hydrocarbon extraction is developed, in the types of equipment that exists there, in the ways that the equipment is operated. And so the, the nature of emissions, the mechanisms of emissions are really substantially different, you know, across all of these different regions. And so if you want to most strategically uh, mitigate those emissions, you're going to want to have a relevant localized understanding of what your emissions profile is so that, you know, that's a more actionable data set. Now, you're absolutely correct in that you might think, you know, I can look at my wellhead, I can look at... Um, my tanks, I can look at my compressors, pretty much all of these different equipment types that handle natural gas or methane, you know, are potential sources of methane emissions. Um, But to, to most effectively mitigate these emissions, you're going to want to do it in a quantitative manner. And so as I was mentioning, our methane emissions measurements you know, we have this equipment level attribution. So when we scan out for emissions across an operator's entire asset set, we generate this statistical data set on the emissions profiles. And then we can analyze that within the context of these different equipment types. So, 
you know, as you pointed out, we might expect emissions from flares or tanks or compressors or whatnot. Well, then we can start really making more informed decisions when we quantitatively know how much these different sources are emitting. So, you know, for example, we've had operators look at flares as, as a significant source of emissions at their infrastructure, and then they did a causal analysis to determine that a lot of these flare emissions were occurring when they had wells in declining production, so there was not enough natural gas production in order to run that flare efficiently. And so they went systematically and applied this learning across their infrastructure and applied retrofits to those flare systems so that they could build up enough natural gas to send to the flare in order for it to operate within its allowable parameters. So here you're, you know, you're looking at these different em uh, emissions categories, identifying key emissions drivers, and then picking out the ones that are most practical and kind of have the biggest bang for your buck to immediately address and more strategically reduce these emissions. Yeah, that there, there's, there's a lot there, and I think there, there's a lot of value in what you said, and I, I want to make sure that that everybody gets that because what what I just heard you say is that you're and and also adding in other stuff you're going from collecting data and emissions data to then finding the individual pieces of equipment that are that are emitting and what that ultimately does is then you can start deciding what pieces are are then you can look at those individual pieces of equipment and understand why are they emitting the methane? Yep. And then uh -huh. it, it, I could see the the operator with with your help saying, "Okay, what is going to be the the almost a, a price per methane mitigation metric?" To then say, "Okay, what can we do now in our budget? Which ones do we have to do now because they are such large emitters and such large." burdens on us yeah. and it and it changes with time too that Absolutely. that's a it's a fascinating thing to think about that it is it's not just a one and done you have to think about this kind of throughout the field's evolution as you look at the reservoir and your production and how you're producing that field ultimately that is going to change how your equipment operates and that's going to change potentially how much methane you're 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 letting accidentally get released to the atmosphere. Yeah, that's completely correct. You know, uh, oil and gas production is a very sophisticated industry uh, with a lot of different characteristics that you have to consider and manage. And the best way to do that is maintaining relevant measurement-based data. So instead of relying on a bottom-up model that was based on data collected maybe 20 years ago, to guide your emissions reductions, what you really want to do is quantitatively evaluate your emissions and keep reassessing your emissions so that you can identify where to mitigate emissions, see the impact of your mitigation efforts, and then continue to benchmark and track your emissions reductions over time to make sure that you're actually doing what you set out to do with your emissions mitigation program. Yeah. So... I guess I've got a, a larger open-ended question on what you're saying there with with the existing emissions standards, if you will, 
it sounds like it was a very, it's very broad. And what I heard you saying is that it, it's not um, focused enough and location specific, which ultimately is, is making our, our emissions calculations wrong if we're just basing it on standards. Yeah, so I want to uh, bring it back a little bit to a higher level and talk about you know the different ways that we address methane emissions. So mostly, what we've been talking about so far is emissions accounting or emissions inventories. So you know that's a really important aspect of the conversation. Now, when we look at environmental regulations, I kind of like to categorize it into emissions accounting regulations, like the greenhouse gas reporting program. And then performance standards. So, you know, within the Environmental Protection Agency's regulations, they have a set of performance standards saying, you know, you have to implement these sorts of emissions control devices, these covers and closed vent systems. You know, you have to switch out your pneumatics for this type of pneumatics in order to to reduce emissions. And so, these are, you know, what I call performance standards. Since we're, since we're using the term standards, I just kind of like want to make that distinction there. Um, and Emissions monitoring is actually that sort of leak detection repair. Uh, it's a work practice standard that you can use to reduce emissions. So there's actual regulations designed to directly reduce emissions, these, these performance standards, and then regulations intended to benchmark and understand the volumes of emissions from different sets of infrastructure. Okay. Okay. So let me make sure I understand basically those performance standards are almost best practices on how to mitigate any type of just standard leaks that are going to occur because of the volatility of oil and gas versus the actual monitoring detection and and mitigation, which is actually finding the leaks that are occurring because the best practices may not actually be best. And then, fixing those problems. Is that right? That's that's close to it. So emissions monitoring is, <laughs> okay, regulation land is very complicated. So emissions monitoring and leak detection and repair is what we call a work practice, uh, which is part of the set of performance standards for you know the new source performance standards for the EPA's regulations. Whereas emissions reporting has largely relied on these bottom-up models and there's some but limited opportunities to use measurement data for emissions reporting. So they're kind of like separate camps. But the emissions monitoring is used to find you know equipment leaks and what we call these abnormal process conditions where things are not functioning in the way that you expected them to. Uh, and those tend to contribute pretty significantly to emissions. So, you know, the emissions monitoring does fall within the set of performance standard regulations. Um, but when we're really talking about understanding how we want to change our infrastructure, you know, especially on a voluntary basis and not according to the requirements within regulations, then you know, that's where we want to incorporate this measurement data separate from our regulatory requirements, you know, look at, look at our empirical data and then understand, you know, what we have to do as a company to make sure that we mitigate emissions because, you know, the, the environmental regulations are put forth by, you know, regulatory bodies that are going to have limited insight into an operator's, you know, individual infrastructure sets and challenges. Okay. I think I understand now, and I think that makes sense in terms of 
reporting stand reporting necessities versus this voluntary data collection and and mitigating leak detection leaks through detection so i do have a another question on this as we're talking about the monitoring as we're talking about finding these i think a lot of people and i've i've had other companies on the show that are on-site monitoring versus aerial imagery and and the the methane lidar detection. Mm-hmm. Can you explain the different use cases and maybe offer some insight on on why or how or when or what what would be valuable? to incorporate these different technologies? Yeah, absolutely. Like you correctly pointed out, there's kind of two general classes of methane sensing technologies. So the technologies that are situated, you know, permanently or somewhat permanently on individual sites. And then technologies like Bridger Photonics Gas Mapping LiDAR, which is deployed or placed on manned aircraft and, you know, flown over sites. So those are, you know, periodic scans versus fixed sensors. And so the idea with a fixed sensor is that in theory, you could have fixed sensors on all of your sites and they provided complete temporal coverage and complete spatial coverage. So you always knew if you're going to have an emission on your site. Well, To look at this more practically, it's just not quite as simple as that because you have to make sure that these fixed sensor systems are not missing things in space. So for example, some of the most important emission sources could be from tanks or flares. So those are lofted emissions oftentimes. And so you want to make sure, well, actually really hot emissions are oftentimes the lofted emissions, but you know, tank emissions occur at height. And so you want to make sure that your fixed sensor system is going to pick up those emissions and it doesn't have blind spots because a lot of these fixed sensor systems are individual point sensors and they rely on the wind blowing methane into them and able to pick up an elevated methane concentration. And so that's one thing you want to think about, you know, do I have sufficient spatial coverage with this fixed sensor system? Whereas a lot of these aerial systems, now you're approaching complete coverage within line of sight from the air. So you have this sort of uh, spatial continuity in your emissions coverage. The next thing that you obviously have to think about with fixed sensor systems is that they're on your sites, they require maintenance. Um, So you have to make sure that these systems stay healthy over time. And then, you know, the expense of having a sensor at every single site. One of the things that's really beneficial about using an aerial detection technology is that you don't necessarily have to own that instrument you can just get the data from that instrument or you don't have to have that instrument on your site either. Whereas you can just get the the data from that instrument. So you don't have to worry about calibrating that instrument or processing the data from that instrument or, you know, having boots on the ground out there to service that instrument. And so, you know, they're, they're just a bit different in, in the value that they provide. So, you know, with uh, an early airly deployed technology, you can really start to cover a lot of sites and make sure that you have a large enough sample size 
to make sure you statistically understand what your emissions look like. Now, the advantage of, say, a sensor system that's located on a site is that, you know, it's out there. So if there's an event that occurs between periodic scans from an aerial system, you know, maybe you're able to pick that up with the fixed sensor system, whereas you would have missed that specific event if you had been using an aerially deployed system. Now, what we like to see with the aerial systems is you characterize your emissions, you understand what's causing the, those emissions, and then you start to engineer those emissions out of your infrastructure so that they're just not going to occur. So there's really, you know, you don't have to worry about having missed them because they're not going to occur in the first place. Now, in practice, you know, obviously there's always the potential for things not performing exactly as you expected them to. Yep. Yeah, and I, I could see as you were talking similar to the way a field evolves with time, I could see a, a potential for for any system that isn't being being properly maintained to have some floating consistent error that slowly gets out of hand. And I would imagine that that is, that is a, a opportunity for, for these. But as you pointed out, with more data collection, you could see that that error trend if you have an error trend in there yeah that's right i mean the 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 idea is really to to come up with a quantitative measurement based understanding of your infrastructure so that you know you know what's going on with it and then you can you can address the the individual mechanisms and and keep them from ever happening in the first place yeah so i see all of your your points with why you should be monitoring your data, why this is this is a way to mitigate methane and to do it in a, a way that potentially is is above and beyond what your minimum operating requirements are. And I, I definitely see why larger companies do it in terms of larger public companies who who are are selling to shareholders and who do have climate reports going out there. But one of the things that I always wonder about are these small independents, the, the companies that they are, they are producing anywhere from a hundred barrels per day up to a thousand or maybe a few thousand barrels per day. For those companies who are maybe profitable, they're doing well, but they really are beholden to oil price or gas price, and maybe they they sweat a little bit at adding extra expenses. Sure. What would you? What can we say to them? Why would monitoring methane and reducing methane emissions be valuable to them? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I think that there's a few points that a smaller company would want to consider. You know, the first one is that uh, as a scientist myself, I always want to have the data so that I, you know, I know the the significance of what I'm dealing with. But, you know, coming down to the to, to the individual value propositions, you know, there's an opportunity for recovered revenue. So, 
you know, keeping the gas in the pipeline. So that's, you know, one obvious reason that you might want to use advanced methane sensing technology. And actually within these smaller companies, it can be pretty cool as to where, you know, the entity that is looking at this data and acting on this data is going to be integrated with the entity that's going to see the additional profits realized from reducing methane emissions. And so that's not, you know, stovepipe between departments. So I think that can actually be really valuable for these smaller companies. But, you know, overall, I really think that the entire industry may feel an incentive to kind of get ahead of the curve and, you know, use the best available technologies to understand their emissions so that they are prepared in advance of anything that may come down, say, the regulatory pipeline or, you know, sort of the the social climate that's going on. Now, we talked about publicly traded companies, but, um, you know, there's also the, this aspect of private equity and, you know, having access to that private cap capital by demonstrating that you are operating your infrastructure in the most responsible manner possible. And so, you know, that can be valuable for these smaller companies. But then just preparing yourself for, you know, what could be coming from these future regulations, uh, things like, what's being proposed as the super emitter response program where a third party could identify a large emission source on your site. And it could be that if you're responsible for reporting this large emission, suddenly this kicked you into another tier where you start having to do um, this more, uh, this subpart W or greenhouse gas reporting program reporting. And so if you understand your emissions and you can get rid of those emissions, then you know you can simplify your regulatory compliance just right off the bat by making sure you have low emissions and you aren't subject to those high reporting requirements or potentially, you know, access to additional markets. So there's a lot going on with methane in the world. Uh, the EU is developing import standards for natural gas. And so, you know, quantitatively understanding your methane emissions and being able to report those emissions and your methane intensity could actually give you access to additional markets for your product. Very cool. And I think that's a, a really good point, everything you're saying there in terms of why somebody who may not necessarily need to do this now may want to consider exploring the ideas. I do want to ask, and I'm pretty sure I know the answer is going to be a no, but <laughs> do you have any any success stories or any any really cool, huge numbers where you can say, the amount of methane you've saved and put back into the pipes for any individual <laughs> company. Yeah. So we want to be really careful about, you know, the claims that we make and, and include the appropriate caveats because what we do is quantitatively map out methane emissions, whereas the operator themselves is the mm. one responsible for identifying, is this an emission that we can mitigate? Did we mitigate it? However, Okay, so if we assume those emitters detected would have run continuously for an entire year, that equates to enabling the reduction of roughly 4.9 million metric tons of methane for the year. Wow. So that's a good number. Yeah. That's it's nice it's nice to get a ballpark idea of the magnitude of an impact that can be had. Yeah. Yep. Well, I think with that idea and the size and the value of what this could be, I think now is a good time to to transition over to my final questions. We can leave the audience with that and get into these questions. These are the questions I ask all of my guests. 
That first one being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Okay. So one of my favorite books is called Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. And that is Richard Feynman's autobiography. And so Richard Feynman is a Nobel Prize winning physicist, and he was involved in the Manhattan Project. He worked at Los Alamos. And so the thing that I really love about that book is there's a number of things. The way he's able to convey his enthusiasm for studying the natural world, I think is just like really beautiful and really inspiring as a scientist. And then the way that he conveys really complex ideas without pretense and, and making it really relatable, I think is also you know inspiring as a scientist. Um, a lot of these ideas aren't really that hard to understand and being able to communicate them to really anyone that you're talking to, I think is a tremendously impactful skill that he was able to exhibit. And it was just really cool to learn about the history of the Manhattan Project and what it was like to do physics during that time. So if anyone gets the chance, I definitely recommend that you check out that book. It's a short read. I promise you it's not boring. <laughs> it's definitely worth it. Yeah, that sounds really good. And I will definitely be adding that one to my list. So the next question, how do we get to net zero? <laughs> so that's, yeah. Um, I would probably be really rich if I knew the answer to that question. That's, there's a lot of aspects to, to that answer, but it's definitely something I think about quite a bit. Uh, and I kind of just more break it out into the aspects that I think about. Um, so, you know, obviously I, I care a lot about energy. Energy is, is so important to society. You know, it's how we, more effectively and efficiently do all of the things that we want to do. You know, it's really a, a tremendous underpinning of our society. And it also, you know, is a critical component of getting to net zero. You know, what are, what are the implications of how we use energy? And so, you know, working at Bridger Photonics, I find a tremendous amount of value in working with, uh, you know, producers of petroleum resources and enabling them to produce petroleum energy in the most uh, you know, sustainable and responsible way that's possible. And so that's one of the things that we definitely need to do in order to achieve net zero. You know, energy from petroleum systems is you know, an overwhelming contributor to our energy mixture. And our society is really built on a foundation of that energy source. And that's not going to change uh, in, in the immediate immediate future. And so we really want to just do that in the best way that we can. So that's one aspect there. We can look at other energy mixtures, you know, solar and wind and, you know, potential breakthrough technologies like fission or molten salt reactors, you know, those could play a large role. So definitely continuing to explore those energy sources is really important. But a lot of times these energy sources like solar or wind, you know, you have the problem that, they can be centralized energy production resources and it's actually hard to get that electricity to places. So we have to look at, you know, can we build the, the electricity transmission infrastructure efficiently enough to actually take advantage of the, you know, these resources. So even though they're available, can we effectively use them? So that's one thing we want to look at, you know, certainly uh, carbon sequestration, 
that's an important aspect of the discussion. You know, it's thermodynamically, I think, pretty difficult to remove CO2 from these uh, eluent streams from, you know, these power producing plants. So there's lots of developments in that area. You know, can we use concentrated oxygen and have a more concentrated CO2 output? You know, there's a lot of developments in these areas that I'm not an expert in, but uh, that's, that's one set of things I want to look at. You know, how do we use energy and what are our energy sources? The other thing that I think we really have to be conscientious of is even if in the US we can show our leadership in producing petroleum energy in the most responsible and sustainable way possible, this energy resource is really how developing economies can pull themselves up. And there's going to be a lot of petroleum energy production abroad. And so we really need to collaborate with our partners in you know, international locations and help them to develop their energy in, in the responsible way and you know, share what we've learned in the US with them. And I think that's going to be a really critical component as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is, that is one of those things that that I continually think about is how do we bring power to the people who don't have power yet? And how do we do that in the most sustainable, economic, um, justice, justifiable way? And it, it's a hard question. And, and then you can ask harder questions of like, well, can't they all just go straight to solar? It's like, well, we don't pay for solar right now. Why would we want them to pay for solar? It's right. just there's a lot of there's a lot of loaded aspects to that, which Yeah. There's a lot of hidden complications. Yeah. It's yeah, it's a challenging question. Yeah. Well, to kick that that can down the road, I will we can end that question there. And now the last question is you actually get to ask me a question. You know, that's funny because actually, um, <laughs> even though you want to kick that question down the road, I know that you've been holding this podcast. And so you've had a lot of really interesting discussions with people working in this space. And so I was just curious, you know, could you share some of your insight into, you know, some of the most impactful ways that we can work towards net zero? Yeah. So it, um, I, I agree with you and everything you said that it really is an all of the above solution in that there are multiple aspects and we have to think through those different aspects to, to develop the, to develop the, the future net zero grid and, and net zero society that we want. The ones that I'm most excited about are our thermal energy storage, specifically subsurface thermal energy storage, because the whole basis of geothermal energy is the fact that the earth is a thermal battery. It's holding heat from, from the development of the earth still. So it can hold more if we store all of the wind and solar as thermal energy. So that's one thing that I'm really excited about and something that I, I get to think about on a daily basis. The, the other aspects are, I think one thing that I'm wrestling with more 
on a on a daily basis is the fact that nearly well maybe not nearly but there's a significant component of of funding going into renewable energy that is generated by oil and gas so a lot of the existing incumbent energy industry whether it's utilities burning natural gas or coal or whether it's oil and gas companies generating profit from selling commodities. A lot of that funding is going into modernizing the grid, building out, developing new technology for low carbon energies. And I think that that is something that is this, it's a dichotomy that people want to ignore, but it, it's almost a, it's a necessary thing and something that we should be celebrating and encouraging and, and collaborating on as opposed to trying to fight it. And there's more to that, that is still hazy in my, in my head on, on what my position paper would be, but that's the, sure. the 32nd version of, of what is that, that relationship between old and new energy and what is the future of energy? It's it's going to be interesting. I think that's the easiest way to put it. But I think yeah. that we can get there. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I think uh, this podcast has job security. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You would think so, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, Asa, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say? Yeah. You know, if you're curious to learn more about gas mapping LIDAR, check out our website, bridgerphotonics.com. We have a subpage where we post a lot of really interesting research articles that are done using gas mapping LIDAR technology. And if you want to stay up to date with a lot of our you know, latest updates, check out our LinkedIn page. That's where we're most active. And yeah, it's, it's been fantastic. Thanks a ton for having me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you again for joining me today. And thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you would like to hear more of. If you want more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting our website. If you're into stickers, I have a way for you to get some from us. Go to my show notes, find that one question survey link, fill that out, and then we will send you some stickers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email. That email address is joe.batir at oggn.com. If you don't use email, find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low-carbon, high-energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.